We'd like to welcome everyone back to the Nova Society, and this week we begin a three-part series, Things That Keep Me Up at Night, with Dr. Scott Gershwer. And this time, Scott wanted to talk about the culture in America and different aspects of culture, so we were able to divide this up into three separate episodes. So this first episode is really a general um like a general look at the difference in culture in America as it has evolved so far in the 21st century. So let's listen in. Hey, Scott. All right. So you want, what is keeping you up at night now? I mean, because uh, that, that was a hugely popular uh, segment we did in our first season, the things that keep me up at night. So, so what's been keeping you up at night lately? I think that I should be the only one who cares about what keeps, I'm pretty sure my wife doesn't even care. But, but it's nice that other people are tuning into it. Um, I'll tell you what's, what is really bothering me more than anything and keeping me up at night is our culture right now. There is like a bizarre American culture that's going on that I just find disturbing. And I'll say overall that American culture has changed for the better, not the worse. But it's like the people who don't, who aren't in favor of that, that are, that are pushing back on it, that, that are really the, the yeah. big problem yeah. and uh man it is and it affects so many different aspects of the thing i mean let, let, let's start with the supreme court okay well, all right there's a there's a good place to start because if you don't if americans don't believe in the supreme court and you know it's uh favorability probably is fairly low right now and it has been you know well let's say for republicans it has been since they didn't get certain rulings that they really wanted uh, along the way. And for the rest of us, I think right now, because of all the, the, the money problems that, uh, people seem to be having, it, it is definitely eroding confidence in the court. And it's a, I think it's a really serious, um, problem. I think Clarence Thomas's problem and Gorsuch's problem and John Roberts problem are, those are really serious problems that we shouldn't like just slough off as you know, like, well, there's nothing we could do about it. Uh, I'm not sure that there is anything that we can do about it, but I'll tell you, it is, um, it, it's disturbing because it was always something that you had, you thought like, you know, you could at least count on, on the Supreme court. And even when they mess up rulings, like in 2000 with Bush v. Gore, um, it seems that, which we just learned about actually. Right. Uh, yep. Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that for the most part, it's something that, you know, you may not agree with them, but they're, you know, I didn't like Dobbs, obviously. Uh, I didn't like Heller. Um, there are a lot of rulings that I don't like, but I think that they're, you know, that they're on the level. Now it doesn't feel that way. And well, this, I, guess, uh, I guess my question to you would be is, I mean, do you think that it's, this is just getting exposed because of, social media today. Is this something that probably has been going on for quite some time? We just never knew about it. Cause let's face it. The Supreme court was always kind of that mysterious, you know, behind the curtain kind of thing. Uh, they still don't let video in the court. Uh, they let audio at this, at this point in time, but do, do you think that this is something new to this court or do you think it's something that's always existed and we're just beginning to find out about this stuff? Well, clearly it's existed for a while because the relationship between Justice Thomas and uh, what's his, Harlan Crow, 
uh, mm-hmm. goes back some 20 years. So, and, and, um, has gone undisclosed. So the, the ethics part of this has, you know, g- has been exposed by, um, ProPublica. And so I don't think it's social media, but I do, but here's why I think it's a cultural problem because I, I don't know you, why would you know this? My dad was a judge and, okay. and before he became a judge, my father loved nothing more than politics. Politics was his baseball. He and Brooklyn politics is all democratic, right? Yep. There's no Republican party worth them. Yep. And, uh, and it was infighting in the, in the democratic party that in Brooklyn that, you know, really got him going. And he was a civic leader uh, for 10 years. He was the president of our local civic association. He was the chairman of the Br- Brooklyn opera society, which was amazing to me because he hated opera, but he thought <laughs> that it was really important to bring culture to Brooklyn. Yep. Um, a number of other things, Brooklyn against crime, all, all these, all these things. And he would, every single night of the week, he had meetings that he would go out to. And after the meetings, they would go to the diner and they would hang out in the diner until one, two o'clock in the morning, just, just shooting the shit and enjoying themselves. And he loved that. And he became a judge and he never went back ever. He wouldn't even talk to these people. He did not want any sort of possibility that somebody could think that he's politically motivated in any way or, or compromised in any way. And, and so when I see somebody who has a lifetime appointment at a really good salary, yep. still feeling like they have deserved or they're entitled or, or they can get away with uh, the stuff that, that Justice Thomas has gotten away with, and apparently some of the others as well, although they may be one-offs, and this is like a, a sort of program of corruption. And, you know, I had an argument with my, my older brother, who's an attorney, saying, you know, I went to a, he said, I went to a baseball game with an old colleague of mine who's now a judge. Should I have not have done that? I can't go to a baseball game. And I said, did you buy him a beer? Was it a good beer? <laughs> or, you know, just the regular stadium beer. I mean, it, you know, there were rules for this kind of thing where right. there should be. Um, but it used to be something that you didn't really have to worry about. And this guy Crow, although he may not himself had any business before the court, he's a director at the American Enterprise Institute. Right. He's a board member of the Hoover Institution. And he's on the board of the Supreme Court Historical Society which you would think, oh, well, what could possibly be wrong with that? The Supreme Court Historical Society is the most innocent name I've ever heard. But apparently the Supreme Court Hist- Historical Society is just a, a way for people to get access to these justices who attend these meetings with, that are attended by corporations and special interest groups or lawyers or the law firm that, that um, whose name escapes me, that bought Gorsuch's house, the guy from that law firm. Right. Um, and and it, it just get the Supreme Court Historical Society sounds so benign, but it's just an opportunity for individuals to, you know, get to influence the court. And it's, it's, it's not benign at all. It's, no. it's terrible. Well, it sounds a lot more benign than say like the Federalist Society, which everybody knows exactly what the Federalist Society is about. 
They are it's, a conser- it's above board. <laughs> that's right. I mean, they, they may they may have politics that you and I don't agree with, but the bottom line is, is they are definitely above board. So I guess the other question I would ask is, you, know, you, you brought it up. Supreme Court justices in the United States are appointed for life. Does that kind of make them feel untouchable that they can do things? Because, like, of course, they can be impeached. Good luck with that. Yeah, I mean the the process of impeachment is like ridiculously, you know, cumbersome, and it, it just it's just not something that's going to happen. But do you think it has anything to do with the fact that they're appointed for life? You and I both, it's, I think, can agree that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a was a great justice. But then again, at the end, she was getting a little long in the tooth. Let's say, yeah, I mean. Yeah. You know, she was shrinking shrinking away before our very eyes. Right. I mean, is this, is this a really a problem that maybe having a limit to how long they can serve might help with the accountability? So if I'm not mistaken, the reason that they gave them a lifetime appointment was to get them away from any kind of temptation towards corruption. And it's had the opposite effect. So I, I don't know how that works. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me that uh, like uh, I've always taken the lifetime appointment for granted. And I remember when my dad became a judge, he said, look, I just got 125000 a year. I think the salary was at that time for 10 years. That's a, right. a million dollar. That's a million dollar uh, appointment. Yep. And and he did everything that he could to stay clean, you know, and no, he didn't want to have the, any kind of optics. And these guys are completely the opposite. As far as I can tell, like does justice, does chief justice Robert's wife need to work? No. Does she no, need to, probably. to steer judges to law firms for a living? I mean, um, uh, lawyers to law firms for a living. No. It just, it seems absurd to me. So no, so the culture right now is greedy. It's corrupt. Um, there's, and it's very tribalized. Know. I mean, let's take Ginny Thomas, for instance. Yeah. I mean, that, that woman getting involved in, you know, trying to overthrow the election and, and it's all out there. It's all there on the text and, and the, the evidence has been found. It just seems like, and, and I agree with you, that I've always taken for granted that they're a lifetime appointment because that's the way it's been since the beginning, in our lifetime. That's all mm-hmm. we know. And now we're hearing about all these things. Judge, you know, like you said, Judge Roberts's uh, wife, she doesn't really need to work. Now, should she be precluded from working? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. I remember uh, when Jesse Ventura was elected the governor of Minnesota, they were complaining about his wife having a job. And he says, okay, he goes, I'll have my wife quit her job. Now you have to pay her to be the first lady of Minnesota. Do you really want to do that? And they all said, oh, no, we don't want to do that, which, okay. My issue with this is let's take uh, Thomas, for instance, this is, this is pretty clear cut law as to what you can and cannot do. If he can't figure this out, how could he possibly rule on the really important things that come before the court if he can't even figure out the ethics of his position, which I would think when you go into the position, you probably, let's face it, you look it up. How can we trust this group to make correct jurisprudence decisions when it comes to the really hard things? 
And this, to me, the, the, the ethics thing is, is a fairly easy thing. Like you said, keep your nose clean. It's the idea of impropriety and they just can't even seem to do that. So I would agree with you that it, it causes an issue with the average person because the, the Supreme Court's always been the most popular. They've always been more popular than the Congress. They've always been more popular than the president because they were always seen as, as a higher level above and beyond the fray of politics. But right, not now. Right. But, but again, somebody's always going to win and somebody's always going to lose. So somebody's always going to be aggrieved. Okay. I was in 2000 Bush v. Gore. I didn't agree with the decision. I didn't riot in the streets about it, but you know, but I didn't, but, but I didn't agree with the, with the decision and to come back now and find, you know, the, the sort of collusion of the judges behind the scenes is a little disturbing. Okay. But, but, but here's something, and you know, their ideology, right? You know, who's appointing them. Right. And, you know, and they go through the process and, and, you know, uh, except for, um, Merrick Garland, they get through that process, right? Uh, and and are elected, or not elected, are appointed and, and confirmed, and that's right. the you know, and that's all proper. And you, but the idea that there was so much deception on the part of the judges, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, I think Alito uh, would be in there. Who's, who said, you know, stare decisis, where, you know, precedent is precedent and, and right. this is settled law and, and all these things, and then turned around the first chance they got and, and, and did Dobbs. I, I've never thought that it was corrupt. I just thought it was ideological, deceptive, um, something that you hope people didn't do. The Clarence Thomas thing is different because it really, it's just deeply corrupt. And it's systemically corrupt. It's like he didn't just take one thing. Like Gorsuch unloaded a house, a property that he owned. It's a one-time thing. The, and right. and maybe John Roberts should have just um, been more forthcoming about what his wife was doing for a living. But this thing with Thomas is is a lot worse than that. Yeah. Um, it just it just seems deeply corrupt. On with you know by a judge who's who probably would say, hey, look, I, you knew I was right wing to begin with, and I support right wing causes. So who, what difference does it make who, um, who's buying me dinner or flying me around the world to ride in a super yacht um, in Indonesia? Right. But it does. I mean, it, or at least it looks like it does, and and they should have the discipline to avoid that, and they don't. He doesn't. No, 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 they don't. And uh, I kind of find it very strange, well, not strange, but a coincidental, that all of this really began to come to light after Dobbs. You know, people started looking, actually looking into the court. I am always go back and I say, well, because I I, I really do enjoy thinking back and saying, if this didn't happen, what what might have been if something different, let's take your example about Bush Gore. I always think of how would Al Gore have handled 9-11? Better probably, and although I don't think it's a I, high bar. I, I don't know, but I mean, again, it's interesting to think in that, in, in those terms. So I guess when I think of the Supreme Court and all this coming out about the Supreme Court right now, I mean, they've even, as as you mentioned, they went back to Sandra Day O'Connor. I mean, the poor woman's been dead for some time, uh, back to 2000. But all of this seems to have come out after Dobbs and the political yeah. division that that created. That's when it seems like everybody started to uh, really look into this. 
I, I don't know if it, if it was Dobbs. I, I mean, I read the ProPublica piece, and they said at the very beginning of it, we began to think about, I don't know if it was after Dobbs or another case, we began to think maybe there's something going on with the court, and that's why they were investigating it. The whataboutism that you're getting is like, oh, what about Sotomora? She didn't, she didn't disclose $3 million that she got from a publishing company. And in fact, she did disclose it. It wasn't even close to that. It was like $115,000 for writing a children's book. And she wrote the book. You know, it was like she she got contracted to write a book. And they all write books and they all have speaking engagements and things like that. They all take um jobs at, at at schools, you know, when they uh to do lectures and things like that, you know, which is I I guess fine. You know, they have every right to do it. And it's probably good that they get out there and spread their wisdom around a little bit to, to the kids and all that. But, uh, and you know, they're not doing it for free. Of course. And you know, they, they make decent amount of money as adjuncts as you and I do. Um, and, uh, the, but the, the thing of, of it is that, uh, it, you know, after, when you start looking into it and, and their, and their, what about ism is like, well, after Dobbs, you didn't like the decision. So the journalists went out there and started looking into, and all they found so far is they're only looking into conservative judges. And I'm like, no, come on. I mean, you have, you, there were right wing um, political reporters who were capable of a little skullduggery. Let them go out there and find <laughs> something on Sotomayor and Kagan and, and uh, Ketanji Brown. Ketanji Brown, right. <laughs> Um, you know, they can do that if they, if it's there and hopefully it isn't there, but it, you know, it's not there with all these guys either, but there does seem, seem to be something wrong. And it felt like Kennedy, you know, there was something wrong with Kennedy as well back when he was in there. And I don't know. Um, so anyway, that's, I guess that's, but again, it's not the court that keeps me up at night. It's the culture. And, right. and there's more, more aspects of that to our culture, but that one, you know, the, the greed culture uh, really does bother me and the sort of entitlement culture that that we have in certain sectors of our society really kind of bothers me. Well, Scott, that's about all the time we have for this first part of our three-part series that examines the culture and the evolving culture of the United States of America. And of course, I'd like to thank Dr. Scott Gershwer for joining me in this episode. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Phoenix Research Group, offering solutions to social issues through independent research. We'd also like to thank our podcast partners, Buzzsprout, who hosts the Nova Society, Apple iTunes, the largest source for music and podcasts on the internet, and of course, PodKite, our analytical partners for the Nova Society. As always, we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and remind you that if you wish to contact us, we can be reached at nova.society.podcast at gmail.com and always remember the power of society is knowledge and we hope to see you again next time.